0: Well, good morning. I'm going pause for just a moment for a brief prayer. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable unto you, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Lord, we ask your blessings upon the service. May the message... Be your message, and may it speak to our hearts in Jesus' name, Amen. I want to thank you for the opportunity to stand here behind this pulpit today and to share from the Word of God with you. You know, before I do this, I always offer the caveat that I am not a preacher; I'm not licensed to preach. I don't know that you're supposed to preach without a license, so please don't go because I think you get a lot of trouble for that. So don't don't go out because I don't need no trouble. But I am a raconteur, a storyteller, you know, a a a teacher. And so I'm going to teach, and I'm going to use my approach this morning that very closely resembles the approach that I use in the classroom. I invited several of my students to come. I don't reckon they wanted, I mean, they have me five days a week. I figured they need a day of rest. (laughs) But, um... So I'm going to tell a few stories. I'm going to show some PowerPoint slides. I'm going to read instructions from the textbook. I hope you brought your textbook to class. Because for the past several weeks, we have been uh, working on a series of lessons about Jesus the Savior. During Sunday school, we've been studying the decision that Jesus made to travel from Judea or from Galilee to Judea. The scripture is pretty clear about this thing, that Jesus embarked on this journey, uh, knowing full well the fate of what lay in store for him in Jerusalem. Jesus knew who he was. He understood his purpose. He was able to see the, the big picture, and the Bible tells us that once he set his face toward Jerusalem, everything he did began to point toward the cross. Mark's gospel tells us of three occasions where Jesus specifically warns his disciples of his impending death and his resurrection. Interestingly enough, in all three of these instances, the disciples are concentrating on themselves rather than on Jesus' mission. His mission is the Messiah, the Savior. Rather than focusing on the task at hand, the disciples are distracted by their own interests and ambitions. It was a function of their mindset, of their attitude, if you will. They were looking at things from human perspectives and not a heavenly perspective. The first example we find is up at Caesarea in Philippi, the mountainous region there in the northern part of Palestine where you have the headwaters of the Jordan River. It was there that Jesus asked the question, Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, You're the Messiah. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. So let's look at Mark's version of the story. In Mark chapter 8, verses 31 through 33. Jesus then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. And be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And that he must be killed, and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and he looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely... Human concerns. Now I don't know what Peter said. To rebuke Jesus. But we know that Jesus made it very clear. That he was not thinking. The way that he ought to be thinking. And this is Simon Peter. This is. Where Jesus. Up there in Caesarea Philippi said. You will be the rock. Upon which I will build my church it's obvious he needed some attitude adjustment before he was ready to take on the role that God had planned for him. Then Jesus and the disciples began this journey from the remote region of Caesarea down to Judea, heading toward Jerusalem. It's is following the transfiguration when Jesus once again tells them of the purpose of the trip. And once again, the disciples are distracted by their earthly concerns and they didn't understand. Look at Mark chapter 9. We're going to go to chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10. Mark tells the story in order. They left that place and they passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. And he said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and after three days he will rise but they did not understand what he meant and they were afraid to ask him about it they came to capernaum um, when he was in the house and he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road but they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. And he took a little child whom he placed among them and taking the child in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me or whoever does not welcome me, does not welcome the one who sent me jesus is a teacher he's using that strategy that we use you know you want if you want somebody to understand something first of all you state it okay and then you explain it and then you provide an example or an illustration that's what jesus is doing here he's teaching his disciples he's teaching them yet they still have their focus on themselves who's going to be the greatest mark chapter 10 go to the third story here they're on their way to jerusalem uh yeah they were on their way up to jerusalem with jesus leading the way and the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid again he took the 12 aside he told them what was going to happen to him we're going to jerusalem he said We're going to Jerusalem, and let me get myself to where I'm supposed to be. I'm supposed to be in Jerusalem. Right there near the wall. Yep, that's where I'm at. Okay, so we're on our way to Jerusalem. We're going to Jerusalem. Jesus is leading the way. The disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. And he took the twelve aside, and he told them what was going to happen. We're going to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered Over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later he will rise. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee came to him and said, teacher, we want to know, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. We want you to do something for us. They just heard him tell what was getting ready to happen. Now, that's nice. We want you to do something for us. What do you want me to do, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other your left in glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? We can, they answered. And Jesus said to them, well, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with. But to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. Those places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. So there you have it. Three examples, three times on this journey from Galilee by the Jordan River, up to Jerusalem, Jesus foretold of his divine mission. He was going to suffer. He was going to die. After three days, he would be resurrected. And each and every time, the disciples are preoccupied with their own paradigm of who Jesus is. And we're concerned about, you know, the basic question. I always tell people, you have to, when you're negotiating with somebody, I'll usually ask them the basic question. What's in it for me? You know, and they were concerned with that, and, and they were not focused on Jesus, Jesus' message, because they were distracted by the crowd, by popular opinion, by who was going to be the greatest among them. Let's not beat them up too bad, because we are guilty of the same thing. Earthly, It's earthly thinking, after all. It's easy to become part of the crowd, to seek honor and recognition for our efforts, to bask in the glory of of our success. My father used to tell a story. He, I think he got it from Peter Marshall. father used to tell a story. You got it from Peter Marshall. And help me. There we go. Yeah. About a man in a bowler hat. Okay. So I I told Brother Hester. I, was, I had gone through. I had my father's files. I do wish that he were able to be here with me today. But, but he would tell this story. Um. I think he got it from Peter Marshall, who got it from George Blake. George Blake was invite, invited in 1934 to witness the launching of a large ocean liner, the Queen Mary. This magnificent 1,000-foot vessel was capable of transporting over 2,100 passengers. It was the flagship of the Cunard White Star Line. It was the pride of Great Britain. Thousands of spectators crowded the shipyard on the banks of the River Clyde near Glasgow, Scotland. Millions more listened on the radio as the king spoke that day, and that speech was broadcast around the world. The cameras and the movie reels were rolling as the queen stepped up to break a bottle of Empire wine over the bow of the great and beautiful ship that was being launched on its maiden voyage. Now, launching a ship into a small waterway is kind of a tricky You can flood the other bank. I mean, it's just very difficult. And and the river there was only about a stone's throw wide. So to Blake, it seemed unlikely that this queen, this massive ship, this frail little queen was going to be able to launch it by just striking it with a bottle of wine. Uh, There had to be more to this story. So Blake, he works his way down through the crowd underneath the giant platform that was built for that occasion to the hull of the ship. And beneath that platform, he found a sturdy man dressed in a traditional bowler hat standing all along. He was the shipyard manager. This isn't the shipyard manager. He's actually was used to be the governor of Kentucky in the 1920s. But do you know how hard it is to find a man with a bowler hat? You never let the truth get in the way of a good PowerPoint slide. <laughs> okay, but anyway, so, that full disclosure made, Blake um, watched this man, unnoticed by the crowd, but, but all important, as he quietly removed his hat and his overcoat, and then looking at the, his watch, he examined the chains and the scaffolding that held the ship in place. He rechecked his calculations, rolled up his sleeves, and picked up a sledgehammer. Okay? The appointed time comes. And at the appointed time, the queen performs her ceremonial duties. She cuts a ribbon. And when she cuts the ribbon, the glass bottle swings away and crashes against the hull. At the exact same time, the man with the bowler hat takes his sledgehammer, and he knocks the pins out of one of the blocks that's supporting the hull. And all of a sudden, the great ship begins to move and slide backward down the ramp into the water. The people, the people cheered. The band played. They tossed flowers in the air. The military officers decked in their gold braids saluted. And, um, they yelled, God save the queen. Meanwhile, down below, below the platform, the man with the bowler hat rolled down his sleeves, picked up his overcoat, fixed the hat to his head, grabbed his umbrella because it was a rainy day, and walked off, walked home through the crowd unnoticed. The, the morning papers featured the story. They had pictures of the dignitaries. Pictures of the queen. Pictures of the beautiful ship. There was no mention of the man in the bowler hat. No pictures to be found. Uh, He was anonymous. He did not matter. Now Peter Marshall used this illustration to, to illustrate those men and those women, those unsung heroes who go and do the job without getting credit. He said, there's something in the heart of a man standing beneath the platform watching the great ship go down into the water which publicity cannot provide and money cannot buy. It's the lasting reward, the enduring prize that in the end goes to the man in the bowler hat. That's why I like, it's a lesson in humility and in sacrifice and being part of the team and being part of something bigger than yourself and doing the job that has to be done. It's like being an offensive lineman playing football, which is why, I, you know, if an offensive lineman, if you're not penalized for holding, no one knows who you are. You're never going to get your name in the paper. Um, but you're an important part of the team. Today we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We remember the Monday. Now, I've learned what Monday Thursday was. Monday comes from the word mandatum. Okay, so it comes from the same thing that we get mandate from, mandatum in Latin, uh, which means command. And so on Command Thursday, we're reminded that Jesus in the upper room gathered his disciples together for the Passover meal. And he told them, a new commandment I give to you. John chapter 13, 34. A new commandment I give to you to love one another just as I have loved you. You're also to love one another. Jesus gave a command and then, you know, you, you're supposed to make the statement. And then you're supposed to explain it. Jesus said you take on the role of a servant. And he provided a great illustration. John chapter 3, verses 3 through 17. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands. And that he would come from God and was going back to God. Rose from the supper. He laid, his outer, laid aside his outer garments. And taking a towel, tied it to his waist. And then he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet. To wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now. But afterwards you will understand. Peter said to him, you you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but my hands and my head. Jesus said, the one who's bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who was to betray him. And that's why he said, Not all of you are clean. And when he washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and your teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should also do as I have done to you. Truly I say to you, the servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you're blessed. Nancy tells me that I get too many ideas in my head. And I start running when I'm doing something like this. My poor students tell me this too. Because I start pulling all the pictures together and all the pieces. And I see it and sometimes I don't make it real clear. But what I see here in this story is the same thing I see in the story of a man with a bowler hat. Which is the lesson that the disciples are missing all along the way. And that is there's something bigger than one person. Jesus knew his purpose was bigger than him. He he was going to give his life for all of humanity. He knew the magnitude of the sacrifice. And in the same way the man with the bowler hat doesn't worry about the praise and glory, in the same way the disciples should have been focused on their opportunities with the, the Messiah, they knew the Messiah, the, the the Savior. Jesus wasn't distracted by the world. Oh, he was. He went across after they left. He would go over to the Mount of Olives, and he would struggle. Father, let this cup pass. But he would also, in the end. Look at it through that heavenly perspective. Not my will, but thy will be done. See, at the end of the day, it's all about attitude. It's about the recognition that there's a higher calling, something bigger, and Jesus calls us into action. We're to love one another. We're to go and share his love. He provides an example, the example of a humble servant. The servant who gives up his rights for others. The servant who becomes less so that others can become more. The servant who is obedient and humble. Paul would put it this way. If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, Complete my joy by being of the same mind and having the same love and being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from self-ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God to be a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. And he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name,
1: of you. To is light Pray that we'll be worthy of it. Please forgive us of our sins, and I pray that we'll examine our hearts and that we will um, try to do our best to be worthy of this <clears throat> sacrifice that you have made for us. Thank you for heavenly father for the sacrifice of your body and for in your blood. And we just pray that we will completely um, glorify your name. Thank mm-hmm. you.